I mean, we'll touch on it and kind of the story of how we got to thousand dollar lumber, yeah. which is just so crazy to think about, Chris. Yeah. Like a thousand dollars per thousand board feet, it's just the unit of measure. I try to tell my friends, imagine in 2000, you know, 11, whenever gas prices were super high at the pump, the most I ever paid in Kansas City, where I spent most of my life, was like 375 a gallon in the Midwest. And it's like, imagine paying that. And then now you're paying 950 a gallon. And it's been that way for six months. And you can't not buy it because you got to get to work. And it's just, just crushing to your budget. So it's such a a wild time. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I have Stinson Dean the owner of Deacon Lumber. Stinson and I met on Twitter, surprise, surprise. Uh, and I had been following his tweets about the lumber industry. He is uh, as well-versed as anybody I've ever seen. And I reached out to him and said, I would love to do kind of an industry breakdown on how the lumber industry works. So today's episode breaks it down. Uh, we talk about the entire industry. As most people know, um, at this point in time, lumber has skyrocketed. The price of lumber has skyrocketed. And we talk about how the lumber industry works, what the current issues are in the industry and why the price has skyrocketed, some of the things that could bring lumber prices down. Um, we talk about trading lumber. We talk about all the different types of lumber. This is Lumber 101. So I hope you enjoy as much as I did. And thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. Stinson, welcome to the show. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. Been looking forward to it and glad we're finally getting a chance to talk lumber. Yeah, I have too. Uh, lumber's Lumber's the topic of the day, and we have a fascinating episode for everybody. So let's just start with kind of your kind of journey into lumber. How does somebody make their way into lumber, and and what are you doing today? Yeah, it, it, you know, lumber's it's a really small and niche market. A lot of people in the industry, their folks were in it. Maybe they worked at their parents' lumber yard. It, it, it's not like a very popular, sexy industry to be in lumber. And I kind of fell into it. I was in medical device sales coming out of 2010. Did that for a few years. And I decided, you know, I, I don't really um, enjoy that sales process as much as I would like. And, and But I developed a really good skill set of selling and business-to-business -business sales. And uh, I was talking to a recruiting agency that I wanted to just completely switch gears and get out of healthcare, but stay in sales. And they had partnered with a uh, commodities brokerage, a risk management consulting firm called FC Stone. They recently named uh, changed their name to Stone X. And Stone was looking for sales professionals that could go in and sell consulting services to businesses that had commodity price risk. And they would teach me, you know, the book smarts side of the deal. So I kind of went through an academy 
um, is the first time they did it. And it also was the last time they did it. And um, after uh, a few years, I was the only one left out of my class. I don't think because of skill or anything, I just kind of was able to find a niche specifically in lumber. There's a lot of expertise and sophistication and talent in the worldwide traded commodities of ag, energy, metals, meats. But lumber is just so small. Uh, it, it really wasn't a developed market from a risk management and consulting perspective. So I kind of latched onto that desk and I learned from uh, some of the best risk managers in the ag space and then some of the best risk managers in the lumber space. And that is a very small group of people in the lumber space. So I feel super fortunate to have learned under these folks and been able to develop a skill set in lumber that involves futures and risk, risk management, a lot of hedging. And I was consulting the industry for several years. And, you know, it's like I, you can move the needle, but at the end of the day, in our world, if, if, you're, if you walk into a place and say, hey, the best thing you can do is be 100% hedged all the time, like you get kicked out of the room. This is completely un, unheard of. Where in ag, you know, grain elevator, co-op grain elevator, they're always 100% hedged. Like it's, it's crazy town to think you would own corn and not have it hedged. Now, farmers are a little bit different story. But so it was, it was really interesting education that I got. And I felt like there's an opportunity in lumber to come in and apply some pretty simple risk management techniques and trade. Uh, basically buying physical lumber in the open market, mainly from producers and storing it with a hedge and then uh, moving it to different locations around the country and bringing it to market um, when the, the basis, which is the difference between your, your purchase price and your hedge, uh, appreciates in your favor. So, you know, I, I thought I could be pretty good at it. I went to work for one of my clients and again, I learned under some of the very best in the business. We, we call it cash trading. I run into this a lot, like that kind of the terminology. Trading cash is the same. It's just another word for physical lumber. Folks buying and selling two by fours. And that's what we mean by cash. So some of the best cash traders um, on the planet, they've been doing it for decades. And I was able to come in and, and learn under them and experience some really crazy markets at what we thought were crazy markets in 2018, 2017 into 18 was at the time, the wildest thing we've ever seen. We went from 350 to 650 and everyone's head exploded. And um, so I got to experience that and navigate that under some really experienced traders. And then I eventually just went out on my own and started Deacon Lumber. And there's a difference between theory and reality. And that was like the biggest slap in the face when I got into cash trading. When I was a consultant, you know, you're on a whiteboard and when the numbers say this, you buy it. When the numbers say that, you sell it and here's your profit. And we do, you know, all this education and spreadsheets and models and the whole thing. But in reality, it's just not nearly as clean and it's not nearly as um, simple. And there's so many nuances and so so many moving parts. And that's why I was super fortunate to learn from some very good and savvy, um, experienced cash traders. And so now I've, I've kind of molded 
my experience as a consultant and experience with futures into my cash trading experience and put them together and and uh, I trade physical lumber in the mainly in the south and southeast kind of the SEC country. So I want to break down a lot of what you said. I'll start by why are futures underutilized? It's kind of the theme. It's it intimidates a lot of people because it's illiquid, but it's illiquid because the cash market is also illiquid. And to me, having traded several different commodity markets, lumber is the most volatile. It's the one with the least amount of information, just the industry as a whole. We don't have production statistics like a WASD report for ag that comes out every month, how much corn's been planted, how much corn's been harvested. Um, we don't have a Cushing stocks report every week like oil does. So there, there's there's such a lack of fundamental supply and demand information that it's hard to take kind of a confident position in it. If you're, especially if you're an outsider, because you could be right. You could say, hey, I think we're going from 500 to 1,000, but it could go to 400 first and then go to 1,000. You got to ride out that, that $100 drop, you know? So, so the volatility scares a lot of people away, but I am a huge advocate of using lumber futures because it's the only and ultimately effective hedging tool for folks that have buy side risk and folks who have sell side risk. Meaning if the price drops, you're in trouble, so you can hedge, or if the price rises and you're in trouble, if that causes you trouble you can be hedged ahead of time. That's key. So I, I think it's just underutilized from a lack of education. It can be a little bit intimidating because it has pretty big swings. But if you got the stomach and the cash and you can pay your margin call on your hedges, it's very profitable because of all those things, because it's very efficient, because it's very volatile, and it's inefficient. And because it's very vol- volatile, there's so many opportunities to arbitrage between the cash market and futures market it's a really good tool. You just got to understand what you're stepping into and you are eliminating price risk, but you're adding liquidity risk. You got to be able to pay the margin call. If your hedge goes against you, it's because your cash, your cash side of the equation is going for you and you just got to be able to ride it out to the end. So it's definitely a, a commitment to having enough liquidity to, to see these things through. But I can point people to, I used to consult in the industry. Folks can, can reach out to me on Twitter and um, DM me because I can connect you with folks that they live and breathe consulting uh, lumber hedging for all folks and all different folks in the supply chain. And I think it's really important. And it's events like this that get people interested. Like, what can I do? Well, the answer right now is not much, but going forward, there's a lot you can do to protect yourself and to set budgets for 12 to 24 months and to sell lumber. You know, if you're forward selling, if you're a lumber yard, you can use futures to set your sales prices. And if you are building an apartment, um, you can set your budgets off futures, but you need to actually buy the futures. It's it's like committing to a purchase just on uh, in the futures market. So you don't have to dole out all the money for the PO, but you can get yourself hedged. So it, it, it's just a, little bit of a education curve, I think. And you've, you've, you've said, you know, it's obviously very small. How many people are like you that's doing this? Is it tens of people, hundreds, thousands? Like how many folks do what you do? Small, like a hundred. 
like there's in the supply chain, there's a lot of people who buy rail cars on a two week ship time or two week uh, load time. And they, they take two weeks and they try to sell it before they actually have to pay for it. Right. Um, they trade the paper. There's a lot of those. There's not a lot. I mean, I say there's like hundred of those, but I'd say there's less than 20 um, people who do what I do, or we take risk for, we have, I have price risk on average for 90 days, which the other business model is to take price risk for two weeks. So it's a significant difference in how you manage your risk and where your risk is and how you manage your inventory. Why do a lot of people not participate in lumber as opposed to other commodities? What keeps people uh, out of it? I think, I think liquidity. When I was raising money for Deacon Lumber, it, you know, we, you'd meet with folks and you'd walk them through the plan and risk management and all the things. And they're like, okay, how much do you need? I'm like, mm, you know, a couple million to get us started with some inventory. I'm like, oh, okay, well, talk to us when you need 50 million. Like they're just looking to place a bunch of money, right? And it's like, I couldn't, I literally could never use $50 million in equity. I just, the market's too small um, in lumber. So there's not enough volumes traded on the open market for you to not get yourself cornered. Like you'll accidentally corner the market. It's a small market. It's not hard to do. And you can blow up super easily. Um, the lumber has a shelf life, unlike other commodities that can store for a long time. Uh, you can't hold on to lumber forever, waiting to mark for the market to come back to you. So I just, I think, just in my experience, trying to bust into it, it's just the size thing. You can't deploy a ton of money into this industry, uh, into the lumber supply chain, um, like you could with energy, ag metals, all the kind of bigger, sexy, sexier traded commodities that are international. Lumber is, I mean, there is lumber that goes to China. that you used to be a much bigger player, you know, 10 years ago, but it's just six single family homes and we're not building nearly enough. So there's not a lot of lumber going into them anyway. And um, I just don't think the market is liquid enough for a big bank or a trading firm to, to really make it worth your while. Because you, you just can't deploy that much money without getting um, squeezed. Is there government subsidies in lumber? <laughs> Are there? Not Is like there? not like in uh, all the other commodities. No. I mean, we'll touch on it and kind of the story of how we got to $1,000 lumber, yep. which is just so crazy to think about, Chris. Yeah. Like $1,000 per thousand board feet, it's just the unit of measure. I try to tell my friends. Imagine in 2011, whenever gas prices were super high at the pump, the most I ever paid in Kansas City, where I spent most of my life, was like $3.75 a gallon in the Midwest. And it's like, imagine paying that, and then now you're paying $9.50 a gallon. And it's been that way for six months. And you can't not buy it because you got to get to work. And it's just crushing to your budget. So it's such a, a wild time. and from a government subsidy, it's, it's like there's been a tax on Canadian lumber imports for decades, going back to Reagan and in the eighties. So it's kind of the opposite of a subsidy, depending on how you view how tariffs filter their way through the economy. 
So no, it's not subsidized outside of housing. And if you can say housing subsidized by suppressed mortgage rates and first time homebuyer credits and things like that. But the, the, the lumber industry directly is actually the opposite. There's actually a tariff that's been as high as 22% uh, recently. It's down to about 8% on Canadian imported lumber. So no, it's the opposite. And I think to get in the game and to answer a little bit more of your question, why aren't more people doing it? It's, it's really nuanced market and to become a producer. You know, there isn't subsidies to produce like there is for corn. You know, it's, it's a, it's a fairly risky venture that takes a long time to recoup your money. And that's why there's just a ton of legacy uh, brands that are uh, producing lumber at this point. Yep. And one more question, and then uh, we'll get into the, kind of the business model, but you mentioned shelf life. What is the shelf life of lumber? I would have thought it was like really long. Well, when I think of shelf life of like other commodities, it can be years and years. Lumber, three to six months, um, you're okay. And then you start to get worried after that. It's it's mainly a weather, weathering, like the appearance of the wood. And then, and then the, the worst thing that can happen is mold gets inside the bundles and you don't really know it until you bust it open and it's, it's full of mold. It's all still usable. Um, it just takes some extra, you know, washing for the uh, mold and the weathered stuff. I always argue it's, it's still fine. You just got to flip the board to the other side, but um, it's hard to sell. So I've sold lumber that's a year old. If it stays out of the weather, uh, you can store it. You definitely can store it inside for over a year, but as a trader and a vendor, uh, you want to make sure you have fresh stuff. So three to six months, you're okay, and then after that, you you get kind of nervous. And most people in this industry try to turn their inventory every thirty days, so it's not normally an issue. Um, I'm a little bit different, but so it's not. Maybe maybe you think twelve months is a long time, but compared to other commodities, it's not. Yep. And then just a little bit more on the business model. So you said you you buy lumber and then you physically store it, wait, you know, for some price adjustment that you're looking for, and then you start distributing it, I'm assuming, to kind of the end user. Who are you buying it from and where are you storing it? Yeah, so I mainly buy from sawmills, from the producers. And this is an important point that I was excited to, to tell the masses here. Can, Canadian lumber builds the, the the vast majority of our homes in the United States. Your wall studs, your plate material, um, basically Denver and even Vegas, but Denver and East, it's all Canadian spruce, commonly called SPF, uh, spruce pine fir. So I'm primarily buying from Canadian producers by the rail car and you can build five to six houses out of one rail car with the board footage that's on a rail car. And I buy rail cars of lumber and I, I store it in different warehouses, mainly around the Southeast and wait for someone to need lumber prompt, meaning the same day or next day, because I already shipped it from Canada. By the time I cut a purchase order to the time the lumber's in my possession, at my warehouse, that could be easily six six weeks, three weeks for the mill to get it produced and loaded, and another three weeks of transit time, enough transits 
transit time is slow because of weather or rail car shortages, that transit time could add another two to three weeks. Um, so if, if a local lumber yard needs a truck because they're short inventory, for whatever reason, they misbudgeted because they're having to make these decisions six to 10 weeks before trying to decide how much how much lumber are we going to need in two months? Because we got to make that decision today if we're actually going to have the lumber on hand in two months. It's a really impossible decision that these lumber buyers have. Um, so they depend on folks like me to fill the gaps when they misbudget and they're maybe a little bit busier than they thought they were. They call me and I sell to retail lumber yards. And contractor lumber yards, I, I, the best way to describe it is the the lumber yards that you and I aren't allowed to walk into. You know, the the dusty uh, industrial looking lumber yard with high fences, and uh, you know they don't sell plants and and shrubs and things outside. It's it's home builders, uh, contractors are the ones who who buy from these yards. So I'm not selling to Lowe's or Home Depot. But you know the biggest the biggest yards that I sell to the biggest national yard, Builders First Source, eighty four lumber, BMC, uh, Carter Lumber. Those are those are the names that are the biggest lumber buyers in the country. But I would assume you know most of the typical public don't know their names because none of us buy lumber from them. So you're building relationships with those lumber yards. And then when you're buying from the mills, the mills are in the United States. So the lumber is coming out of Canada to a mill in the United States. And then you're buying from that mill. No, the, uh, the mill, the, all the whole production operations in Canada, there, there are certainly a bunch of U S mills in the Pacific Northwest. Weyerhaeuser, Potlatch are uh, bigger names that folks would know. But the main producers that supply the housing market to build homes are all in Canada. So the the, uh, the sawmill, West Fraser, is the biggest sawmill on the planet. And they buy logs on the open market. They um, ship the logs into their facilities. They cut the logs in the two-by-fours, two-by-sixes. They take the, the chips and the sawdust and go make other stuff with it. And they sell it from their sales floor to folks like me and to folks like my customers um, and everyone in between. So it comes, it, it comes from Canada as a finished product. And that question that we had talked about on the pre-call, where does your business fit inside the overall supply chain? I think uh, the shortest way to say it is I'm a middleman, but, but I'm a trader. So I'm buying low and hoping to sell high. And I, I, I fill a gap, what I think is desperately needed, and I touched on it earlier, is a liquidity gap because there's only so many offers for lumber because there's only so many producers and there's only so many bids for lumber in the cash markets because you know, I think number one lumber yard in the country size bought number three. And six years ago, number one bought number two. So... And, and market share and lumberyard size. There's just not a lot of bids. So I stand in between there and try to provide liquidity to the sellers when they're trying to sell lumber in a pretty illiquid market. And then the same thing on the sell side. So, you know, I don't face the public. I don't sell home builders. I sell directly and or strictly to uh, lumberyards who then, you know, put together housing packages and sell, sell to the builder. Okay. 
let's move into just kind of the industry and do a deep dive into how the supply chain actually works from starting with the tree. I know we've kind of covered it, but let's just dive deeper into the supply chain. Start with the tree, where they come from, logging, seasonality, all that stuff. Yeah. So I think it's important um, to roughly understand, and, and I have a lot of gaps and where where I gaps in my knowledge, because where I sit in the supply chain, I, I know what's going on, on the producer side, how much you're selling it for, how much is being offered. I know it's happening on the buy side from a dealer's perspective, but I don't know what the dealers are selling it for. I don't know who they're selling it to. Um, so I don't have a full picture of the supply chain, but I have a really detailed view um, of what I do get to see. So the reason Canadian lumber supplies most of our housing market is because the trees that grow further north grow with tighter rings. It's just, it's a, it's not, I I don't want to say a more dense tree, but it's, it's strong. It's the strongest tree with the most pliability. If you're a framer, the framers just prefer and code um, prefers Canadian spruce because it meets meets a bunch of grade and spec requirements um, for span ratings, and it's easy to work with. And you know they're like master lumber folks up there in Canada. So what's unique about Canada is most, if not all, of the forest land is owned by the government. And you know this this will eventually lead into why we have tariffs on Canadian lumber. So it's important to understand the dynamic, but Canadian uh, sawmills have, they, they buy logs, which, you know, are, are trees that are cut down by an independent logging company and they buy from the logging company, um, but mostly comes from government owned land. So the government's setting the price of the logs, basically. And U.S. producers for over 30 years have claimed that they are getting um, an unfair and illegal subsidy from the Canadian government because the Canadian government will price the trees, price the logs at a cheaper rate than U.S. producers, which have to buy almost exclusively from private landowners here in the U.S. So I can see how that makes sense and how that could be abused. And because of that, they've won and they've, uh, lumber. There's a lumber producers coalition that have that has lobbied and successfully um, lobbied the government to slap different types of anti-dumping tariffs. And oh, there's another word for the government subsidy portion um, that they tax any Canadian lumber coming across the border because of the way they get their trees, because of the way they get their logs. It's from the government. It forced, and it's like a 22, 23% tax. It has been over the years. And it forces the two governments to come together and create a uh, agreement based off of price levels to trigger different taxes and, and tariffs. And, um, and I'm getting a little sidetracked, but uh, there's a lot of questions about the tariff and, and what's important is you know, why there is one. It's not a Trump thing. It, it was kind of funny because it was literally the first kind of executive action he took was Canadian lumber tariffs. <laughs> but it, it just so happened that our uh, softwood lumber agreement had just expired. It had been a 10-year agreement. 
And it was the fifth one. There weren't all five years, but uh, it just expired and he was in the driver's seat to decide where it went next. And we don't have a software lumber agreement right now. We really need one to reduce the tariffs um, and to get everyone back kind of on a normal playing field. But that, that caused a ton of volatility. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Canadian sawmills set the price for lumber coming across the border. And if I get a 20% tariff, I got to cover that. And, and I, I think ultimately you can see that that gets passed along. Is Washington working on that right now of cre- of getting that settled or could this be an open-ended item for a long time? I, 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 th- I think it'll be an open-ended item. There was five years in between the two other, the, the two most recent software lumber agreements. Um, I think it, the one expired in 2001 and we didn't, we didn't get a new agreement in place until 2005. So um, I haven't heard anyone talk about it. There's, you know, industry associations and lobbyists um, that uh, that's their top priority, but uh, I don't think it's anyone's top priority in Washington right now. Um, so no, I haven't heard any progress. It was pretty exciting when President Obama and Trudeau had a joint press conference and they like set the word lumber and software lumber. That was pretty cool, you know, and, uh, but no one said lumber in a long time um, in DC. So I don't see it changing anytime soon, but the reality is if you take the the tariff off, I, you know, the mills just don't reduce price 10% overnight, but it does, it does reduce their break even and allow prices uh, to fall further without mills curtailing supply because they're they're cutting into cutting into their margin too much. So that that's kind of the story behind the tariff, which I'm trying to talk about the supply chain a little bit, but tree gets cut down, it gets turned into lumber. Um, I was just on Twitter the other day pushing out some some data on price differences between lengths. And it's a super sophisticated operation at these sawmills and the Canadians are the best at doing it, the best operators. And they look at yield for a log. They look at the volume of the log, they scan it. They look at the prices that two by six, two by sixes are getting, two by fours are getting eight foots versus 20 foots versus 16 foot. And they determine what's the best use for this log. And, you know, if there's more waste, uh, there's the chipboard and the, sawdust like all that is calculated to what is the best use of this log not necessarily how much lumber can we get out of this log but what dimensions can we cut that's giving us the best yield so that that's kind of done on the fly uh at the mills so they're they're constantly kind of changing lengths and widths depending on market dynamics and i think one of the charts i put out you could see two by four 14 footers were at this massive discount compared to the rest of two by fours, like historical $150 per thousand board foot, $150 discount in the fall. And then within three or four months, it just slingshotted the other direction. And now it's like at a $90 premium, which it had never been. Typically it's like a $40 plus or minus kind of range bounces back and forth. And to me, it's like 14s got so cheap. It it was worth it maybe to make it a 12 footer or make it two seven footers then a 14 foot. So they got underproduced in a big way. And then now no one's producing them because it was had such a low yield and they're overproducing other links because um, they didn't want to produce 14s. So all that's happening at the mills and it's not overnight. 
they're trying to forecast and, and figure out what links they need to cut. And how the sawmill sells is important because, you know, it dictates, they kind of set the market. And they're always trying to sell on a, like a three to four week forward sale. They want to book production, book sales for unproduced lumber for the next month. So their sales floor gets with their production manager and they kind of estimate, this is what we think. This is how many cars we're going to produce this month. And the sales force goes back. They discuss what kind of prices they want to get. And then they go, you know, they, they literally kind of have an open market in the morning. Their phones start ringing and uh, they start taking orders and trying to find the marketplace. So when I, if I call the uh, sawmill of the day, I'm, my questions are, what ship week are you selling? And then what's the price? Um, so they typically want to be selling four weeks ahead of time. That's a, we call it an order file. It's a really strong order file. If they are pre-sold for four weeks, then they can produce it and get it shipped. And then, you know, you got the rail time in a perfect world. It's a two to three week order file. And if you're a lumber buyer, you got to think two to three weeks on an order file from the mill, three to four ish weeks on the rail line to get it from, Texas to Atlanta to the Carolinas. That's three to four weeks of rail time. And that that's so the the buy side has a completely different risk and mindset and pain point. And I think they're just they've always been in this impossible position of how much lumber are we gonna need in two months? You know, and they're looking at last year and what their growth is, and they're getting they're having the same meetings that the producers are having and trying to figure out and forecast volumes and then they got to forecast for their salespeople what they think their prices are going to be so they can sell to home builders at profitable prices that's basically the supply chain and timing has a lot to do with it but mills produce it in canada you got to think six to eight weeks ahead if you're a buyer you buy it you get it eight weeks later and it's probably pre-sold to a builder so you really need it and then it goes out the door to the builder and you know, gets installed, gets goes behind drywall, and you never think about it again. Yep. Do you have? Do you know any information on how long it takes, like a tree to grow to become a log that can be turned into lumber? Is it ten years, five years, fifty years? I think it's thirty. I don't. I honestly don't know for sure. I think in Canada, it's thirty because the the spruce tree grows differently. Southern yellow pine and the pine trees down in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Texas. Uh, I think that's closer to 15 to 20 years, but it's, it's, it takes a lot longer from my understanding uh, for these Canadian trees to uh, repopulate. So a big reason why this episode came together is uh, obviously lumber is going, uh, which we've talked about, insane. Um, so let's start diving into the nuances behind that. The loaded question, why are lumber prices skyrocketing right now? <laughs> <laughs> Man, the simplest answer, not like I'm not great at giving simple answers, but is producers stopped producing and consumers kept consuming. And that was purely a COVID phenomenon. And producers stopped producing because they literally couldn't have workers showing up to factories or? More, no, more so. 
partly yes, but more so it's it's this long history. Like 2008, and the housing market, I think, peaked in 2007, was just so scarring for everyone in the industry, from home builders to sawmills. And if you are still around, operating under the same name, then you are likely extremely conservative. And March of 2020 was terrifying. It was terrifying uh, for the, I mean, for all the reasons, but for our industry, um, we didn't know if the government was going to step in and fill the gap. We just saw, I mean, those unemployment prints, like they're literally off the charts. So I feel like our industry over most is just super, super conservative and can spook really easily. So what happened was like, they just, they did not want to produce overproduce into a market that could turn into a depression. Like you just, I got to reread my tweets and, and put myself back 12 months ago. You know what the government stepped in and did monetarily was unprecedented in scale. And so no one was expecting that. And so there was this chance that we just go into this, terrible economic spiral and that's how i think the lumber industry thinks like we go there really quick because of what we experienced in 2008 and what we ignored in 2006 and 2007 um so i think they reacted very quickly and just cut production just you know from three shifts to two shifts and two shifts to one shifts and let's see how this thing played out and lumber you can watch lumber features and the stock market that was all going down at the same time and I think they bottomed right around the same time or around here a year ago. And living that post-COVID shock, it's just no one wanted to believe that we would go higher. It's like, oh, we'll see. I don't know if the, the, the housing market's going to come back. Um, so many people are losing their jobs. You know, we're going to stay cautious. And that caution created just a, a huge production shortage. Like no one wanted to turn it back on, even when prices, and this is the wild part, like when prices got to 450, 500 or 550, which is priced FOB mill, which is the futures price, Canadian mill, by the way, the futures are Canadian price, uh, price Prince George, British Columbia and US dollars. Those are well over break evens. Those are historic highs in the upper 20% of historic prices, 500 or above. And we kept going higher and we went to 600 and then we went to 655, which was the previous high in 2018. People weren't coming back to work on more shifts. And then certainly COVID restrictions and precautions definitely played a part in their efficiency and in their capacity to spit out lumber at the mill. But then it just got crazy. 700, 800, 900, a thousand like that. Those last three hundred dollars, just backbreaking. And I was I was hedging, and I'm like, I'm going to have a light position. I don't think we're going to be up here very long. This is crazy. This is temporary. That was July, and by September fifteenth, we we're at a thousand bucks, and we had a little bit of dip um, that fall, but we we went right back up and set a new high, heading in the Christmas and in into January, and we've been here for six months. So I think it was started because of just the 
the scars that we have from the Great Recession um, in our industry. And it was exacerbated by COVID uh, restrictions at the manufacturing uh, facilities, um, PPB, social distancing, and quarantine, stuff like that. And then now, we just can't catch up. Like, there's not a liquid supply chain with lumber kind of moving in and out normal where the mills have, you know, some extra inventory to fill the gaps when their production gets a little out of whack. Like they have no extra inventory up in Canada to fill rail cars if they need P to, to patch work in um, to fill orders. And then the, the rail car issue, rail supply was cut and like then capital investment, all these things, just everything went on pause. So it was just a big reaction to what if and a very, very slow acceptance that housing is back, housing is leading us out of this thing, and lumber is going to the moon. It just took a long time from the seller side and the buyer side to accept that. But here we are. And it's it's fair to say now, though, that everybody's like working to get back to full steam. There's not still like this caution in the market or is there still caution uh that you're seeing no i i think everyone's working to go all out i mean it's like almost criminal not not to at this point with these prices like if you're a publicly traded company like you can't be playing hide the hide the stick when you know you got double the record-breaking price that you've ever had so it's just it's just a really naive assumption to me to think the Canadians are playing games or producers are playing games with how much they're producing. They could produce more, but they're milking it. I just that's not the way incentives are working, um, especially publicly traded companies. So it's a combination of too slow to ramp up and then demand exceeding anything we've seen in, in years. I mean, this is the best 2020 is the best housing year we've had. In, in the cycle by far. And um, it's just this constant game of catch up. And I think the Texas in the nationwide blizzard has been the only chance the industry has had to catch its breath from a supply chain perspective. And we've kind of stalled out, granted at record high, $1,025. Prices have not gone higher for most items in four weeks, which is about when the, the blizzard came through. Um, so this is the first time anyone's got a chance to catch their breath, accumulate some inventory. The mills are still producing. They're probably accumulating a little bit of inventory. So now all of a sudden, some of the friction in the supply chain will, will loosen up because people have some room to breathe. And not, not everything's just hand-to-mouth survival, purchasing anything you get your hands on today and worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. So that's the kind of the change I've seen really recently. But... You know, the caution is one more point. I don't give simple answers, Chris. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> That's all good, man. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I love this stuff. It's, it's just, I love lumber. I love the industry. I love the people in the industry. I love that every headline matters to me from wars in the Middle East to, you know, Fed raising rates and all like uh, stimulus, like it all just intimately matters to the price of lumber. And I just, I get super passionate about it. So thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, but you see caution in home builders too. 
I was listening to a large publicly traded home builder on a conference call say they're not buying land unless, and I'm not an economics guy or an equities guy, but generally the gist was we're just being really conservative of buying land. We want to see that we can project a 20% return on the land purchase. And unless it's a steal, we're not buying it. And I'm looking at this dude like, <laughs> we are, have a massive housing shortage and you're like got this conservative stance on your growth. And one of our top priorities is paying down debt. And it, like, I am not a CEO. Like, you know, he's, he's not thinking of that stuff on his own. He's got a whole shareholder board and the whole thing, but it just seems wild to me, but we're really more indicative of the type of people in our industry that are still around. Just very, very cautious, de-risking at any opportunity they can get and not um, putting risk on. So to me, we're going to be in this vicious cycle of a shortage of kind of everything, housing, um, lumber production, because we just don't have a lot of risk, uh, risk on type folks, because the folks that are still around are extremely wealthy and they made it because they're conservative and they got a lot of cash and they're kind of waiting for the cycle. And we've been in this cycle for 12 years. And to me, housing is just starting, just starting its cycle with the demographics and all the things people that need to listen to me about housing forecasts, but we just got a long runway. Um, and I think it'll just be that much more volatile if folks in our industry continue to be conservative. So for you as a trader, it creates obviously a lot of opportunity. It sounds like it's a pretty inefficient market. Yeah, it, it does. For as much as I want the, the industry to kind of step up and meet our massive housing shortage, it's good for me as a trader. I arbitrage inefficiencies. When certain products get overproduced, I buy it and I wait for I wait for it to become underproduced. When certain products are underproduced, I try to sell it forward at a price and uh, buy it later. Um, forward sell it and, and buy it at a cheaper price later. And th- those inefficiencies are large when there's not a lot of players who are, who are in there arbitraging you know, two by four 14s that are super cheap compared to the market. Like there's just not a lot of people that are, that are there making the bid. So yeah, it's, it's highly inefficient from a pricing perspective for sure. And you said something about like, nobody's trying to be a criminal here, but the narrative right now is that I think it's the mills and the producers are making all the money and the people actually growing the logs are not reaping the benefit of this huge price. And obviously all the end users, the builders that are using this in their homes, they're not obviously reaping any benefit from a high lumber price. Um, can you speak at all to, and, and, and you kind of maybe already answered it, like who's making all the money here? The mills, for sure. I mean, without a doubt. U.S. mills, U.S. based mills, a lot of U.S. mills are owned by the Canadian uh, sawmill companies. And, the, you know, most of them are publicly traded. West Fraser actually just very recently got listed on the New York Stock Exchange, um, which uh, is, I think, the first Canadian producer that uh, you can trade uh, with U.S. dollars. And um, they, I just, they're some of their market caps are, you know, four billion, and they're going to produce cash flow of a billion dollars in 2020. Um. And it, the prices continue to to be um, the same, uh, you know, these high prices are going to continue to print money. 
there's articles in the Wall Street Journal recently, and it's really a, a follow-up to some articles they've had in years past about kind of this log and tree glut in the U.S. Southeast. Um, and from what I understand, 30 years ago, folks we kind of were pitched this idea of buy cheap land in rural Alabama, grow the pine trees, and in 30 years, you got a college fund. Well, I think a lot of people did that. And there's just, just a lot of trees. And the, the logs are the input and the capacity is constrained. Um, there's not enough mills cutting wood um, to use up the logs to, to have the logs compete for price. Now, it's completely different in Canada, not only because the government owns the land, but there's, their forests are shrinking at a rate that they're not comfortable with. So the government came down with the, they reduced the annual allowable cut AAC a few years ago. So that restricted log supply out of Canada. And again, it's important because Canada, Canadian lumber is what builds most of our homes, not pine trees in the South. So that's where your focus needs to be when you're talking about supply. And the government just reduced how many acres of land they're going to allow to be cut, annual allowable cut every year. And they reduced that. And it was artificially large because of the beetle pill inf- inf- uh, infestation. Um, have you heard of uh, blue stain lumber or blue stain pine? A lot of people use it for decoration. It's just a white pine with a blue stain in it. And that's because it, it was infected by beetles and it, you know, it affects the log and um, kills the tree, but you can harvest the tree before it rots and ultimately catches on fire. And so the Canadian government opened up their annual allowable cut for several years. I'm not going to get the years exactly right, but I think it was like 2009 through 2015 or 16. It was a very large annual allowable cut because they wanted to harvest the beetle kill trees before they rotted, whether they're still harvestable and you can put them in the lumber. And you'll, you'll see studs that have a blue stain on them. You'll see decorative lumber that marketed as a blue stain lumber. Um, didn't affect the quality of the stick because they harvested it harvested it in time. Um, but that's done. All the beetle kill stuff has been harvested. So now that allowable cut has been shrunk, which has pinched um, the supply side out of Canada. Where in the U.S., there's also a bunch of beetle kill. But we haven't opened our forest to logging and we get these massive forest fires, right? It's way more complicated, but um, I think that's something we should be looking at to have a healthy maintenance of our forests and coal lumber that can be harvested before it rots and catches on fire. And, you know, that can ease the supply side and that could make, I could make, adding a shift or investing in more plant equipment up in the Pacific Northwest viable because there's more logs um, available in the open market to buy. So the log situation in the U.S. South is completely different than the log situation in Canada and the Pacific Northwest for that matter. This is a dumb question, but I'm full of dumb questions. When you say the beetle kill logs, are are the um, the growers intentionally letting beetles rot these trees purely for the look or does this happen by mistake no it's 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 a mistake it's a it's a beetle beetle kill infestation and we're, we're reaching the limits of my knowledge here but there, it your limits are boundless 
<laughs> well, I, I can talk limitless. I don't know about my knowledge necessarily, but uh, beetle kill is a, is a byproduct of climate change, and they're the cold weather isn't hitting Canada um, as long and as cold as it normally does. So these beetles are living through the winter where they should be dying off, and so the trees just become vulnerable. The trees just become vulnerable, and the trees become vulnerable because these beetles never beetles never really um, give them a chance to to recoup uh, during the during the winter. So no, it's like a natural disaster. It's happening in Europe right now too, and they're trying to harvest all those logs. And it's a massive fire risk, and it's kind of a race against time to get them harvested before they rot, and then figure out how to stop. Why is it a fire risk? Because uh, it rots the trees. Um, you dead trees will catch on fire Got first. It. Got it. I have the t- the tariffs that have been placed. Is that what's led to Canadian sawmill companies starting to buy up sawmills in America? Yeah, I think that's uh, partially true. And a lot of people look at the situation and think as much. And it makes sense because they they ultimately benefit because they have U.S. production uh, that doesn't get taxed. Although I argue all the time that the U.S. production that they own is Southern Yellow Pine production. And the use case for Southern Yellow Pine 2x4 is different. Not completely different, but it is different than a Canadian spruce or um, lodgepole pine or ponderosa pine out of the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. So they're not completely interchangeable products. Um, So they're not necessarily reaping the benefits where Canadian spruce is more expensive, so I'm going to use pine. It's not that easy. The bigger and more important catalyst is all the stuff I'm talking about with the threat to their fiber supply, their forest, their logs. I think they looked forward. They saw the beetle kill situation as temporary as far as getting logs. They've been logging, you know, for as long as we've been building houses down here for generations. So they saw the Canadian government clamping down on how much fiber they're going to be able to get to produce lumber. So they started investing in the U.S. South where there's more fiber. I I, I think that was the bigger decision um, by far for them to invest in. Southern Yellow Pine Mills. Um, I also think they saw an opportunity to improve the mills. The Southern Yellow Pine Mills were often owned by families, generational mom and pop type operations, and the uh, Canadians who, again, are very, very good at producing lumber. I think they also saw an opportunity to, uh, to really turn those around and modernize them and use their purchasing power and their selling power and their pricing power as they continue to consolidate. So I, I think that that was the bigger catalyst was the lack of fiber supply in Canada. So they invested basically in fiber supply in the U.S. Is it better in Canada um, for growing these logs and everything because of their climate and weather? Um, and then you had kind of been talking about fires are fires more prevalent in the in the uh, call it North America ra- or in America rather than Canada or no? So the fires and I kind of touched on it. And I was, as I was saying it, it's a little bit misleading because the fires that that make the headlines in California that are burning down houses and neighborhoods and filling LA with smoke the, that is not affecting lumber supply 
at all. Like those are not forests that are harvested. They're not the right trees to produce lumber, uh, framing lumber at least. Um, like it, it just is not affecting supply. Now, this most recent fire season, there was a mill in Oregon. Their literal log deck caught on fire. That's That was significant. Like a power line broke and caught their entire log supply on fire at one location. But the forest fires themselves are just not, they're a non-event in lumber. The, most of these U.S. fires, um, especially the ones around populated areas. In Canada, you ask the question, are there more fires in the U.S. and Canada, vice versa? Um, in Canada, in 2000, and this is part of what I experienced as I was learning the industry or get, kind of getting an education in reality. The, the fire season in 2016, 17, uh, let me say this, 2017 was a record-breaking burn for Canada, the, the country. Like they never burned, uh, had so many vast uh, acreages of, of wildfire. And as a trader, you're like, okay, those things don't happen twice. Well, 2018, it happened again. They, 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 there was more forest fires, more forest burn in 2008 than 17. And if you tack those two years together, it burned, it burned more forest than the past 20 years combined in Canada. It was a devastating fire season, but it's like in the bush, like unpopulated North pole level, like, you know, like super high up Yukon folks weren't, you know, it just doesn't make headlines. So we weren't thinking about it, but the, the forest devastation in Canada in 17 and 18 was just unimaginable. It was just, and it's still hard to kind of comprehend how much lumber was lost from those fires. And, it, and ultimately because it, they had to dry, they just, they were getting the moisture that they needed, same kind of reasons that there's fires in the U.S., but man, it just devastated supply. I know you're not a firefighter, but you probably have some knowledge. You're like, how do most of these forest fires start? Somebody flicks a cigarette butt and it goes up or? It's lightning. It's lightning. It's like, yeah, these dry storms, the clouds, thunder, lightning, but no rain. And because they get started in the middle of nowhere, so they're hard to get to, they're hard to manage. And it's just random lightning and compounded with the recipe of dry kindling. And you know, the Canadians are really good at managing their forests too. And even they have massive forest fire problems. So it's just the uh, lightning sparks, uh, uh, unseasonably dry forest. And the fire season is basically July through September. And that's when we, as lumber traders, we all kind of hunger down, especially recently, like, What's fire season going to be like? Is it going to be record breaking again, or is it going to be a non-event? Um, and it's hard to quantify for me, like how quickly that filters in the price, um, or how long, or how uh, what the scale of that loss is. I don't really think we've understood it, but but I, you, know, I don't, you look at a thousand dollar lumber prices, and it kind of makes sense. In, in these kind of lumber fields, I'll just call them lumber or these log fields where they're growing trees, are the Canadians putting like these little kind of makeshift fire departments kind of plotting them throughout the, the landmass or are they coating the trees in anything that make them less flammable or like what type of protective measures do they take? I don't know. Yeah. 
I have no idea. Yeah, I think that's a big problem, though. A question that came in: uh, Why aren't mills running out of running out or adding capacity? Have you already answered that? Uh, roughly, um, I think they're scared to spend money, and the ones that will spend money are going to wait till there's a down cycle to buy cheap, you know. And I just I think we're we got another ten years of this housing cycle, so it's going to be a while, and it's just going to continue to exacerbate the problem. We just don't. The lumber people of today are just cautious. So there's not going to be a ton of CapEx. There's going to be so much cash at these companies, so much cash. And if they're going to wait for a down cycle, uh, I think it's going to be a while. So they're going to have to do something. But I I just, uh, I don't see aggressive investment um, because of the nature of the industry being cautious. Does that create an opportunity for somebody to go raise a gajillion dollars and kind of change this whole industry? Or is it so kind of deeply rooted in these old ways of doing things that it would be hard to like make that big of a dent in the industry? It's consolidated um, a lot. So your barrier to entry is is large because you're competing against, you know, there's four to five major sawmills. And there's four to five major lumber yards, national lumber yards. And it's just, there's five offers. There's five bids. It's really volatile. It's very nuanced. Um, so I, I would be highly intimidated by it because there's, there's log availability. There's contracts for logs. There's contracts with the Canadian government. There's, uh, you know, the cyclical nature and the volatility of lumber. I, like, I think we're going to, we're in the beginning of a long cycle but there's going to be a ton of volatility. I mean, the, the price of lumber went from a thousand to four hundred and fifty dollars in two months in the fall, and then right back up to a thousand, and cut fifty percent, and then went up a hundred percent. And you know, the low of that little cycle would have been just tremendous lumber prices twelve months before five hundred fifty bucks or four hundred fifty. So I don't know. Someone smarter than than me, maybe, but it's just a highly nuanced. And again. If you have a ton of money, I think a sawmill would be the way to go because you can deploy all that money. But I, you know, I don't know. That's over my head. We need more production and there's room, but you also got to think, well, why aren't we doing more production now? There's some cautious folks. um, But I do think the facility, the production capacity is matched with the log availability. Again, out of Canada, the Pacific Northwest. So that's kind of the biggest question. Can you, if you invest and build a mill or take one that's been mothballed, can you secure log supply? And that's, that's the question. This is just a fun question for the, the moment in time we're in, but as a lumber trader and with prices where they're at right now, are you betting right now that they could go higher or are you betting right now that they're going to go lower? Just a fun question, right? Just a fun question that uh, I, I like to throw in these things. It has no no accountability to it. I, I think we're topping right now for two by fours and two by sixes. I don't trade panels. I don't trade OSB sheathing. This is completely different supply dynamic. I have no idea about. Um, but from what I understand, those those are even more obnoxious than a thousand dollar lumber prices. The price of sheet of plywood, and so that is just stalling projects in general. So I think really starting from the big blizzard we had, 
things haven't really been the same. Prices have basically stopped going up for four weeks. And it's like, okay, are they are they going to roll over and start to fall? Or is this kind of a digestion and we'll, we'll set a higher price? Um, right now, I think we'll be lower a month from now than we are today. But largely, so we're at $1,000 right now, roughly. Um, I think I think there's a big bid at seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred dollars. I think that's profitable for a lot of people who have budgeted projects, sold projects forward, who owe people lumber. So I think there's a very large bid in the market. Uh, so the floor will continue to be high. So I think the trading range is going to continue to be in this historic high, and I don't think we'll see two thousand. Well, I I, I uh, the average price of Two by fours was like 400 bucks the past five years. And I think we're going to be 600 to 1,000, but more likely 750 to 1,000 for the rest of the year. All right. Moving into a little segment on the different types of lumber and pricing and kind of who, who uses what. We can speak primarily to what you do. We don't have to go into the things you don't do. But my first just like uh, elementary question what are the different types of lumber? Um, you've mentioned some from Canada. Like, what are the the main types that we're using to build homes, and who's using what? Single family home builders are primarily using Canadian SPF, which shorthand we just call Canadian spruce. Multifamily folks are largely using Doug fir which is produced in Canada, but also big production basket in the Pacific Northwest. And multifamily uses a lot more Southern yellow pine as plate material, wall plate that because they're building stories, the Southern yellow pine is a denser wood that has that can take the weight of multiple stories on it as plate material. And the Doug fir has a better strength rating as a species so it can take the weight of multiple floors on it. So multifamily um, uses a different set of species than single family, typically. Um, U.S. produced species, which is largely interchangeable for a single family home builder. It's going to be hem fir, H-E-M, hem fir, Doug fir, E-S-L-P, Engelman spruce, lodge, pole, pine. It's kind of... It's, it's literally SP, an SPF Canadian tree just across the border. It's, it's graded ESLP. So it's the same tree. And those Pacific Northwest species and Canadian species, can, uh, single-family home builders can use any of them. Multifamily has a little bit more restrictions on what they can use, and it's primarily Doug fir and Southern Yellow Pine. And when we talked on our uh, call, you were mentioning, you know, a lot of this wood just goes goes behind sheetrock pretty quickly. Um, but you had discussed like our production builders using a certain type of wood, I would imagine kind of a cheaper type of wood. And then you had kind of said, you know, people that are building custom homes and things like that might be using something that just looks better. And you had kind of just made a comment that like, it's kind of crazy that they'll pay for something that truly just looks better, even though it's going behind sheetrock. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so so the feedback I've gotten from customers is as I've learned the industry, I have certain customers, certain lumber yards, smaller 
independent lumber yards, that service smaller kind of custom one-off home builders. And those lumber yards demand, we call it home center grade, like lumber that, that literally looks good. Does It's not any better structurally than anything else, but it, it, it's free of defects and wane and chip uh, chips and or checks. That's what they're called. Little checks in the end. And, and from how I understand it, it's purely so when the home buyer does a walkthrough of their home, showing it off to their friends or walking through the contractor, like the wood looks good. Like that's it. That's the reason they will pay. And I mean, it's often 20% more and sometimes it's 30% more for an appearance grade or home center grade stick of wood that ultimately gets put behind drywall. And a production home builder or regional home builder, those are getting built and they're not really getting walked through from potential home buyers until maybe there's drywall up, right? And they're just waiting for finishes before they, they, they're waiting to sell it before they do the finishes. So, you know, the lumber just has some bark on it and maybe a little bit weathered, but it's not less safe or structurally any different. And I just always found that as a, as a interesting dynamic. So if you're building homes and you, you know, I've never built a home. So these home builders could tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's a big waste of time. And I lose job site efficiency because the lumber is not as good. But there are significant price differences if you allow your supplier, the lumber yard, to give you other species options that uh, may not be a number two stamp, Doug fir or prime premium stamp, spruce, you know, just kind of a run of the mill contractor yard stuff that the production builders are using. They don't care what it looks like um, as long as it meets, meets code and it's safe. That's just something, um, you know, ask your suppliers what else is out there. Because a lot of suppliers take pride in having only the best looking wood, you know. Um, but in the market right now, we're you got to be able to think a little bit different than that. Is is the price of the uh, the multifamily lumber as high right now as the price of the single family lumber, or is it all yeah, the it's same? higher? It's higher. It's higher. Like that Doug Fir species that they need architecturally to build multiple floors is. I think of the percentage. I think it's thirty-five percent higher than the equivalent spruce. It's it's very scarce right now. The Doug first stud trim, and you know it gets to like if you got if you're pinching pennies on your budget, um, can you use? Can you go to your architect, whoever makes these the engineering decisions on higher floors that don't carry as much weight? Can you sub out Doug fir for a spruce or a hemp fir? that maybe is not as load bearing because it's on a higher floor and you can finish the job. Can you spec that from the beginning? Cause I, I sell the folks who ultimately supply these, these job, uh, these uh, apartment jobs. And it's like, Hey, I need a quote for this. And it has to be, has to have this stamp. It's going to come from these two mills and you know, I need it tomorrow. It's like, well, <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and they just have such handcuffs because of their contract. And uh, so, so as far, again, I, I don't know, but if there's room on the engineering side to get creative on the species and span ratings and giving your suppliers freedom to subspecies and not necessarily southern yellow pine to spruce, but from spruce to fir, from dug fir 
to ESLP um, because you know the 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 county permit folks come through and inspect your building and they're looking at the stamps and if you got the wrong stamp in there and doesn't meet code you got to rip the entire building down right you got for how you got depending on what floor it's on right you got to figure out how to make that right so this is a high stakes game in those apartments and getting them the exact stamp that they need but if they can offer any flexibility um it'll go a long way to uh part of it's just getting lumber at all um let alone getting a cheaper price for sure what's the percentage of a, a home a typical home is lumber versus like what's the assuming a stick frame multifamily deal what's the percentage of lumber in a multi versus a, a single family home so you think like uh, to house a house a family of four in an apartment it's like 800 square feet um but uh, the average home right now is right around 2,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's I think, uh, a unit to house um, a family, it's like less than half. If you're going to house a person, uh, if you're going to have a living unit in an apartment versus, you know, in a house. So and that, that's, I've talked to a lot of single or, uh, multifamily home developers that reached out to me and talked about the market and a lot of my customers are saying this job's on hold now we're just sitting on this lumber waiting for it to start up again and the reality is multifamily housing doesn't really move the needle on lumber prices you can delay install and wait wait to cut your po for a dip but what's going to move the market is single family homes because of that reason it's just a much bigger share of uh, what's getting built in single family homes. And then the amount of lumber to build a single family home is significantly more than multifamily. So all these multifamilies getting delayed, it's just not going to move the needle until single family home start to, to cool off. And a typical single family home though, like call it 2,500, 3,000 square feet, or I don't even know, 2,200 feet is about 20% lumber. Is, uh, is the makeup? Yeah, the percent of cost is fourteen percent of the the cost to build a home. Fourteen percent is two by fours and two by sixes, and then the lumber package with the sheathing and everything else gets it up to seventeen percent. And that was uh, two thousand nineteen by the NAHB. So it's and it's the by far the single biggest line item on the cost is the framing package. I think it's like double the next one. Um, so it's only gotten bigger with these higher prices. What are some tips? I know like the big public companies probably have their own, you know, teams just focused on this, but for a kind of a regional builder or even a small builder, is there anything they can be doing to kind of hedge this risk and, and be smarter? Obviously, they don't have the resources to have, you know, teams that are focused on this all day. But if you were maybe a, you know, a company that builds a couple hundred homes a year, like what would you be telling them to do? The best, most ideal situation in this game is to transfer the risk to someone else. So if you can transfer the risk to your supplier and say, hey, give me a 30-day price lock. If you're big enough, you can get 90-day price locks. I think that's kind of going away for obvious reasons. Um, But in this housing cycle, at least, the trend has been for home builders to 
transfer that price risk to their vendors. So their vendors will sell them a housing package that will be delivered in 60 days. But the uh, the vendor doesn't have a bot yet. Like the lumber doesn't exist. The lumber that you see has already committed to another job. And they, got, they basically have 60 days to go buy it cheaper than what they sold it to you for. Well, now that's been very painful. As you can imagine, this price is tend to double every 60 days. So they, uh, they're they shying away from that. There's consolidation on the vendor side so they can have a little bit more leverage in dealing with their customers. So that that's not um, as good as an option as it used to be. And a smaller custom home builder uh, is going to have an even harder time getting their vendor to lock pricing. Um, but that's the first thing I would do is who how can I transfer this risk to somebody else? And shop and get a bunch of quotes and see if there's an appetite out there for any kind of price lock. And you know, you, if you're going to go with a new vendor who's willing to do it, you got to judge on their ability to perform because they are committing to board price locks to everyone, and they get upside down. Who knows if they can actually perform? So then, you know, can you do a cost? Pl- and this is like way talking out of left field, but like, can you do a cost plus to your buyer? Can you have something in there? If prices go up, I got to pass the cost along, something like that. Um, but outside of those two things, which again, I are ideal that the, the best answer is to, to me to use lumber futures. One, one rail car is six house, six houses worth of lumber. And that, that's one futures contract. And you can pull up the futures on um, most trading platforms. Um, trading futures, if you don't do it already, you know it's it's sophisticated. And there's a little bit of a, I don't think it's complicated, but it is sophisticated. There's a little bit of a learning curve, and I can point people in the right direction. But you know, you buy a rail car or you buy a futures contract for every six houses you think you're going to build, and that's your budget. Yeah, you got to add some freight to understand where if you're building a house in Atlanta, you take the futures price and you add 120 bucks per thousand to actually get it to Atlanta, unloaded and shipped to your lumber yard when you're budgeting. But you got you got it, and it's not going to be a 100% correlated hedge either. But you can, to me, you can set your budget with deferred futures contracts. If you look at, um. Let me look them up. The September contracts trading at 778, which I had just argued is kind of the lower end of the range. I think there's a floor around 778. And if you are signing contracts to build houses, and I don't, I don't, yeah, the sales cycle is a little bit different, but if you got a fixed, if you're locking yourself into a fixed price to your home buyer, you really have to protect yourself against higher prices and you should be using futures to budget the price that you offer to the home buyer. And there's, you know, there's a lot of good data to run correlations on your product basket, what you use, what you, your framing package looks like, your species, your links. Uh, you can dial all that in and run a correlation study and backtest it to see how sensitive the futures price is to your housing package. Um, and you can really do a good job of protecting yourself. But as I've told people who've reached out to me, hedging by design, you lose money on one of the sides of the equation. Like that's, that's typically how it works. 
So if you buy a futures contract at 778 and uh, out for September and it's August and you're ready to buy lumber and your future, the futures prices fall into $500, well, you're going to lose $278 on your futures contract. But ideally, you're buying lumber for 500 bucks in the cash market. So it completely offsets itself. So that's something that a lot of people don't appreciate that part. But there's a reason you bought it at 778, and that's because it was profitable. Right. And you said that most, uh, you know, in a typical period, people give you kind of like a 90 day lock. I'm hearing right now some people won't even um, quote a price for longer than like a week or two. It, what What is the current kind of time frame right now that people are willing to lock in prices? Do you know? Yeah. I think 30 days or less. Yeah. Yeah. 30 days or less. I mean, if you're a big national builder, those are pretty. They don't tell people their pricing, but um, whatever the best duration you can get on a contract, you got to be DR Horton to get that. Yeah. And most builders, again, I'm kind of thinking about the smaller builder, maybe the small regional builder. Aren't they usually ordering their lumber kind of through their framer? So they go to their framer and say, this is what we need. And the framer kind of orders it or a lot of people kind of saying, hey, Framer, give me a cost for labor and I'm going to go order my lumber on my own and you're kind of running two different traps or do most people typically run it through the Framer and you know they're kind of putting their uh, eggs all in that basket? I don't know what is kind of best practice for single family homes, but I can confidently say in multifamily, everyone buys through their Framer. You know, the, the developers hire a GC who hires a framer and you're at the mercy of that framer's ability to shop and get creative. And, you know, if you want to go around your framer, not not go around them, but, but take charge of purchasing instead of outsourcing it. Um, it's just a big level of expertise, big learning curve, a lot of relationships that your framer has. So, um, you know, there's, there's those kind of, headaches and barriers. So, you know, the framers, you just got to keep them. I don't know anything about framers. I don't know what the culture is, but just logically, you just got to keep them honest, make sure they're shopping, make sure they're being creative um, and force them to get several quotes. It's just, we don't have a market where, Hey, I'm buying from this guy because he's reliable and I've been doing business with him for 10 years. It's just we don't have the we don't have the luxury anymore. Um, prices are too wild. Let's talk technology for a little bit. Uh, is there any interesting technology being created within the industry? Um, you know, maybe different types of wood or software, like anything that's innovative uh, that could um, bring more efficiency to this industry. I think at the sawmill level, there's constant innovation. Um, we don't really see it. I don't see it. Um, but, you know, that's a whole industry selling lasers and assembly uh, manufacturing um, uh, machinery. You know, that that's constantly improving. You know, from the builder side, uh, I'm not going to be able to speak intelligently or in depth about innovations. Um, but I've seen some folks talk about like different ways of framing that save lumber, um, more like just enough, less blocking and spreading things out and kind of a more efficient design and how you're framing up houses. 
will go a long way to, you know, if you can save 10% of the lumber, um, which is 17% of your budget, uh, that's significant. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the startups, if you're looking up the future of housing, there's, they call it 3D printing and it's concrete, uh, kind of, you know, it looks like a 3D printer on a massive scale. It builds these huts out of concrete, but to me, concrete is, is, uh, not environmentally, environmentally friendly. Um, you'll get a lot of pushback there and, you know, you're not building homes that Americans are used to out of concrete, um, you know, huts kind of thing. I think most of the innovation is in, um, manufacturing and then also, uh, efficiencies in, in housing plans and framing plans. There's in the marketplace, um, cause you know, housing is, is a, there's a lot of money and a lot of talent, and a lot of CapEx in housing. Like they're going to figure out how to build houses the most cost-effective way. Same thing with producers. But, you know, in between the, the inefficiencies that we talk about in the lumber market, it's not because it's full of a bunch of um, dumb people. It's because it's a small market. There's not a lot of players, not a lot of uh, visibility to the fundamentals. It's kind of like price. We're all reacting to price. And um, we get a housing report, but we don't really get a supply report. So there, there's some pricing, um, some folks trying to start a online exchange where you can buy and sell physical lumber, very similar to futures. Mm-hmm. Um, tough to do because it's nuanced uh, again, but I think they're doing a good job. Um, they're a great group of guys that if, if it's going to be able to go, I think these guys will be able to do it because they've got a long history in lumber and they just, they understand what the expectations are. They're not, they're not outsiders coming in thinking lumber's full of a bunch of rednecks and they get surprised. I get that a lot. Um, but these guys are, are coming from inside the industry and, and uh, I think they're doing a good job. Yep. All right. Um, a couple more questions on lumber and then we'll, start bringing her home. But, um, and again, I, I asked these questions. I know we've touched on various aspects of how they're answered, but, um, like what is the biggest risk as you see it today? I mean, lumber's at an all time high. We've kind of described why and how things go wrong, but is there anything like that keeps you up at night, uh, that could happen or let's talk about like any kind of death blows to the industry as a whole? Dustin, who's an economist for um, Reese, which is the big lumber and wood products industry publication, he he made a good point that commodities don't stay stay relevant by staying at extremely high prices. So I don't think there can be a shock, but prices keep staying up here. Um, someone will innovate. Three D printed houses. I don't think it has a future, but maybe there's alternative materials metal metal studs um we lower lower the expectations of what a home looks like uh new homes um smaller homes um it's just a just a free market dynamic that i don't i don't think thousand dollar lumber is sustainable or good um it's just it's just going to invite you know tesla level innovation 
um, the longer it stays up there. Now, you know, looking around the corner, seeing what's ahead, um, there's nothing that scares me from people not using lumber. I think it's just a matter of folks using lumber more efficiently. Yep. Okay. We've talked about the kind of the, the macro risk. Ultimately, how is money made and lost in this industry? So you make money in lumber simply by buying high, or excuse me, buying low and selling high, or selling high and buying low. And in typical lumber yards are selling high and hoping to buy it in cheaper than what they committed it to. Um, and where I am in the supply chain, I hope to, to buy it, let it season for 30, uh, 90 days, and then bring it to market at a higher price accounting for my hedge. And so it's just a pure, I'm a pure trader. Like I don't have a robust customer service. I barely have a website. Like I'm not a customer facing and a big marketing deal. Like I am a trader. I buy lumber and I sell it and I will get the order if I'm the cheapest guy around. And I'm only going to be the cheapest guy around if I bought it right because it's a commodity. Like who cares who you buy it from? We're all shipping you the same wood. Um, So simply put, you lose money in this industry by being on the wrong side of lumber prices. And when lumber prices skyrocket and lumber yards who supply the home builders have committed to 30, 60, 90 day pricing, they get absolutely torched on their margin. And they've answered that by offering a bunch of different products that aren't volatile, you know, from windows, the siding to value add where they actually build wall panels in a facility and deliver them to you, which has way better margin versus you having to build on site. But it's just such a price risk game and people get absolutely obliterated when they're all on the wrong side of it. And I, I get every once in a while, Hey, this is price gouging. This is price gouging during a pandemic. And I'm like, yes, prices are high. No, it's not price gouging. Um, number one, because it's like a nationwide price. Lumber is unique in that it's not very regional. Like the price that is set in Canada is kind of passed along plus freight to everyone else. Um, so it's not like it's we're picking specific regions and hiking the price. But the reality is, there's no. You know, what's the opposite of price gouging on the way down? And you get a, you just, you can get cleaned up. And with these trading ranges, I joke, I was the first guy to ever lose 500 bucks a thousand in lumber because it's never been possible before. I bought, I bought something at 1200 bucks and I ended up selling it for 700 bucks. It was like a $75,000 loss. And, you know, lumber has never traded in a range where that was even possible. And uh, like no one, price gouged me, you know, like I just, I didn't hedge it. I got a little greedy and uh, gave it back and it was super painful, but because of the, my education and the experience I've had, you know, you got to save money, you win some, you lose some, but, but in this environment, when you lose some quote unquote, you get crushed in a big way. And so if you're on the wrong side of price, if you're a builder, now that the risk seems to be push back onto the builder, you can get crushed. Vendors, locking in price, big problems. Myself as a trader, 
it's just, it moves so fast. So it's just a really risky, high risk, high reward. And, uh, you know, I think it's funny. I'm, I'm, it's because I'm callous to it. Like I, I, I'm telling everyone that I lost $75,000 in one month on one trade. Well, tell them about that trade you told me about on the phone where you made 50 million. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> that's the episode two, baby. That's the premium <laughs> subscription. <laughs> Sign up for the YouTube, baby. I'll tell you about that one. I, I, I just love callous and all of us are in the lumber industry to losing money. Um, on certain trades. It's just, I still want to say this delicately, but I kind of laugh when these home builders or builder types or developers are freaking out and price gouge. And, Oh, I can't believe that. Like they just can't fathom losing money. And as a trader, it's like, this like cost doing business, but because it's painful for the end users, that's ultimately what's going to lower price. So in the end, I, I guess it's good. They're, they're not as callous as I am to put themselves in a bad position. Obviously, your thesis buying at 1200 was that it was going to go up. Um, like, this isn't really a magical question, but knowing that it had gotten to 1200 were you just seeing a lot of da- data at the time that thought that made you think, like, this thing could run up to 1500 in a short window span? I'm going to capture a quick spread. Yeah, partly. So, this is a really interesting dynamic. This is kind of like inside baseball to trading lumber. I bought that because I was told it was going to ship right away. Like, Hey, this stuff is ready to load. It's going to, it's going to get on the rail car. It's going to get to you in two weeks because real times are like super fast. And uh, it was kind of like my last Fourier into this bull market in the fall. I'm going to buy this one and I'm not going to hedge it. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to sell it really fast. And the short story is it didn't ship to me for six weeks. So it's like couldn't do anything about it. And by that time the futures have fallen, the hedge had gone away, and you're hedulating at that point, trying to chase it. And um I it, so what screwed me was it did not ship when it was supposed to. And that just happens all the time in the industry. Um, you gotta kind of it's part of the risk of, of giving an order. You get an estimated ship time and the 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 market had completely changed by um, six weeks later. And so the real question would be, why did I sell it at 700? Did I think it was going to go to 500? And the answer is yes, but it did not. It, that was it. That was the bottom. And it, it literally, you know, it went for over a thousand bucks by the end of the year. So, And they don't take accountability for not having shipped to you on time. The, the, that's kind of the risk you take as a trader that your ship times will... Uh, line up to to what you thought they would be. There's no accountability on the other person for being four weeks late. Yeah, not contractually. It's kind of like free market stuff. So I have a decision, and this this will tell you how desperate we are for lumber. I have a decision. Do I throw a fit, as you can imagine, for losing that kind of money, um, for them not performing? Uh, it's not really, it wasn't in the country. You know, it's just like handshake. Yeah, okay, it's going to ship this week. Okay. And your risk is you t- you throw a fit and they're like, well, screw you. We're just not going to sell to you anymore if you're going to whine. That's it. Because there's there's only five producers. So where else am I going to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and weird question, but there's no reason that they intentionally held those 
that back for four weeks. Like they didn't benefit from holding that back for four weeks or maybe saw something that said, I know we told them two weeks, but hell, if we extend this to six weeks, there's actually a, we can make a lot of money kind of waiting for more extra weeks. I can think of scenarios where they could do that. Like maybe they took my wood and they shipped it to someone who was willing to pay 1300 sooner. Um, but I am confident that that's not what happened because because ultimately it's the rail line is the one who screws the sawmill. So the sawmill screws me. Like they just didn't have the rail car. The lumber existed. It was on the ground. It's like, we don't have a rail car. Don't have a rail car. And you can watch rail statistics to back that up. So that's, that's what happened. And it was the top of the market. And, um, you know, a minimum should have hedged it, but lesson learned. Yep. All right. We've talked about the lumber industry. You've done an amazing job of breaking it down. I've learned more today than um, I've ever learned. I want to give everybody just a little chance to know about uh, you, Stinson Dean, who, if you've ever emailed with him, it's the best email signature ever. It says Stinson and then in parentheses, first name, Dean, last name. So it's Stinson Dean. Do you have a childhood experience that you kind of remember vividly that's kind of shaped who you are today? Yeah, so I, I grew up playing um, football and I, uh, I was successful. I was, a, I was a successful high school quarterback. Um, I was about 120 pounds ago. <laughs> and it's hilarious. I'll tell people, yeah, I played college football. Like, How would you play? Offensive line? Like, what? <laughs> Why would you say that? Why would you assume that? I don't, I'll don't. i even say it if I coach. I coach college football. I coach, do, did you coach defensive line? What? No. <laughs> Why would you think that? I mean, having four kids, bro, and like working at home and door dashing your lunch because you're too busy. You yeah. know, here, here, here I am. So playing... Uh, Playing sports was just such a formative experience for me. Like the physical toughness of football, like not a lot of, not a lot of people go through, not a lot of kids go through, like I'm going to line up against this guy and it's going to hurt and I'm going to do it anyway. Like there's, there's just something to that mentality um, that shapes you as a kid. Um, I think we know now that it's a little bit more dangerous than we thought, but it just, it just um, is an experience uh, that I can't replace. And I don't know if I'm going to let my son play football, but the, um, the experience and the hardship and the failure and success and the pressure of sports and particularly football and being a quarterback, playing in college. Um, I was talking with my therapist the other day that one thing I struggled with outside of college and my professional life, I was in medical sales. Like nothing seems high stakes enough for me because I was used to being an 18 year old kid with these grown men screaming at you saying their life depends on you performing on the field and failing at that. I, I ultimately never really played and had a very successful career. I played at the university of Wyoming. And um, I was a scholarship quarterback and competing and can, could, couldn't really put it all together on the college level. And like those experiences for me made everything else 
kind of lower stakes. Like I, to an 18, 19 year old Stinson, like that was the world to me and kind of having to go through that experience and growing up in a locker room and, and uh, in the football culture, I just was so valuable to me as a professional, as a trader, um, staying calm, understanding tendencies, understanding probabilities, understanding all the moving parts. Like to me, analyzing supply and demand is like analyzing, you got to know what your offense is doing, but you got to know what the defense is trying to do too. And like, it's a very correlated for me. So sports, as you can tell, it's just, it's just a huge blessing for me and um, definitely made me who I am today. I love it, man. What's the best advice somebody's ever given you? Buy low and sell high. I love it. <laughs> or buy high and sell low. Just make sure that's what you're t- intending to do. Yeah. Or sell sell high, buy low. Sell Don't, high, buy low. I mean, well, yeah, I didn't know if you were poking fun of me for losing all that money. No, I'm not. I'm no. not. Sell, sell high, buy low, which is inherently way more risky just for what it's worth. We got that on the record. Yep. Is there a book, personal or business, that you really like? It's a book called King of Capital. And it's a biography about um, Schwartzman who who runs Blacks Blackrock or Blackstone Blackstone Blackstone, which spun off Blackrock. Um, and just it was really interesting because that's the economy now. It's these massive debt deals, mergers, and it was a really fascinating read to me to understand how it got started in the eighties, KKR, and these guys, it was inspiring because they're just kind of like, hey, we think this can work and let's put some money together. And, you know, I'm 35 and they were in their 30s when they laid launched and it's inspiring in that aspect. But it was really educational for a guy who has a degree in journalism um, to to understand um, how the how the private equity world works. And the biggest takeaway for me from that was cycles. These guys weren't brainiacs. They picked the right businesses at the right times in the right cycle, uh, at the right time in the cycle. And it just made geniuses out of anybody. And you could be super smart and buy at the wrong time of the cycle. And you're an idiot, no matter how smart you are. So for me, it hit home. These guys were highly successful because they understood or they dumbed into buying at the right time of these cycles. And being in housing, I obsess over it. And I think we're at the beginning of a 10-year run where housing finally takes off. Housing is the only thing that has not recovered since the Great Recession. Like we have not eclipsed our peak in production, home starts. And uh, so we just have a long runway. And then here in about five or six years, I'll start obsessing over what does the, the down cycle look like and how do you exit? And how do you build a business that you can sell? Because um, me trading lumber is not a business you can sell, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, King of Capital um, has been uh, was a really good book for me. That it's just a book about the, that guy's life, but it just was well written and helped me understand the importance of timing. Yep. How can people get in touch with you either on Twitter? or reach out if they want to talk lumber and uh, get to know you? Well, they need to be careful if they want to reach because I'll talk to them for hours and hours. 
everything from beetle kill to 3D printed houses and lump softwood lumber disputes. Um, but I, hey, I love it. I, I learn so much from the community. I've I talked to a bunch of developers and I'm starting to understand when budgets are set, how budgets are set, how do they look at the lumber price? So they're lean on their framer and they kind of get this quote and they don't understand that those prices can change. And like they're learning those things painfully. And it helps me understand as a trader, um, the demand side better because I, I don't have a lot of visibility to that. So please reach out to me. The easiest way is to find me on Twitter at lumber trading is my handle. Um, just send me a message um, or you know, tag me in a post or whatever. But yeah, like I talk to people who are just like, Hey, I'm building my own home on some acreage. I, you know, it doesn't matter to me. So if you give me an audience, I'll start talking. Love it, man. All right, Stinson. Thank you so much for, uh, for pouring it out today. This was, this was awesome. This was better than I could have, uh, imagined. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope you learned something. There's a lot to parse through there and, and, uh, you know, reach out to me if, if there's any follow-up questions. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.